Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, May 24th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topsher with today's headlines. The U.S. Surgeon General warns of social media's risk to children. Colombia suspends its ceasefire with a rebel group. Two anti-Putin militias overrun Russia's Belgorod region. Florida faces a lawsuit over its foreign property ban. Italy is accused of exerting its influence over state media. France signs a security protocol for the upcoming Olympics. A Twitter buyout lawsuit against Musk is thrown out. The EU seeks to make Apple pay $14 billion in Irish taxes. Guam braces for a super typhoon. And the UK says it won't repatriate an Ethiopian prince's remains. In our first story today, the U.S. Surgeon General warns social media may harm kids. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The New York Times, ABC News, NPR Online News, and Time. U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murphy on Tuesday released a report warning that social media can have a profound risk of harm to the mental health and well-being of children. Murphy called on legislators, big tech, researchers, and parents to adopt safeguards that could reduce the potential risks to children and adolescents that are outlined in the 19-page report. Murphy also described the current situation as a youth mental health crisis, to which social media has contributed, despite it also having positive effects on young people. He conceded that more has to be learned before deeming whether social media is safe for adolescents. In the report, 95% of teenagers aged 13 to 17 said they use social media, with more than a third saying they use it almost constantly. Almost a third of adolescents reported using screens as late as midnight and beyond, typically using social media at that time. The Surgeon General also provided some tips for parents and young people to better navigate social media. Among the tips were to create boundaries for usage time, call out harassment or bullying, and be cautious about what content is shared online. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We also have some narrative spins on this story. Gizmodo brings us Narrative A. While the data is still being collected, there's no doubt that frequent social media use by kids aged 10 through 19 creates distinct changes in their developing brains that can affect them moving forward. Social media is particularly harmful because not only does it alter their perception of reality, but it is also extremely addictive. It's crucial that everyone come together to create a menu of regulations for protecting kids. Here's narrative B from CNN. Authorities must be careful not to overreach in protecting kids from the harms of social media, or they'll miss out on the many benefits, which include support for youth that are part of marginalized groups. There have already been attempts by governments and tech companies to make social media safer, but this shouldn't be used to dismiss it as harmful as a whole. Murky waters there. You know, one of, this is maybe in that report, that 19-page report, but one that I've heard from other experts is kids will take their phones and adults in the evenings and put it in a basket like at their door outside of their mm. room or, you know, it's like, okay, it's it's time to brush your teeth, phones in the basket. 
Yeah, I feel like uh, back in the day, you know, like, don't you read comic books under your covers with a flashlight? No, please read some comic books under the covers with a flashlight. That's so much better. Absolutely. Absolutely. Some of the the mental health issues, some of the the issues with like teens and suicide, you know, one of the basic uh, foundations there is lack of sleep, right? And it's because these kids are staying up all night and, you know, everything seems worse when you, you you know this as a parent, when you haven't slept, everything seems... Seems pretty pitiful. Yeah, exactly. And they're too young for coffee, so it's a disaster. Yeah. Columbia suspends its ceasefire with EMC and FARC rebels. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Columbia News, Telesur, the city paper of Bogota, Al Jazeera, Fox News, and BBC News. Colombia's president, Gustavo Petro, has unilaterally suspended a ceasefire with the rebel group Estado Mayor Central, or EMC a dissident offshoot of the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, or FARC, allowing the military to resume operations in four southern provinces. This announcement comes two days after the National Organization of the Indigenous Peoples of the Colombian Amazon denounced the killing of four indigenous miners who tried to escape after being forcibly recruited by the EMC's Carolina Ramirez Front in the Putumayo Department. The 3,500-strong group has denied such allegations, warning Bogota that the end of the bilateral truce contradicts the Petro government's total peace policy, while also claiming that this move will bring on war. Since taking office late August, the country's first leftist leader and a former guerrilla fighter has sought to implement an agenda of total peace, based on negotiations with armed groups, to put an end to Colombia's roughly six-decade-long internal conflict. On December 31, 2022, the Petro administration ordered the military to halt attacks on several armed groups in the country, including the EMC, to start peace talks. While violence between armed groups and the military has dwindled, attacks on civilians continue. This strategy, however, has been frustrating so far. Truces with the EMC and the Gulf Clan were put on hold by Bogota over the past months, while rebels from the National Liberation Army, pulled out from peace talks. Thank you, Scott, for the facts, and we'll begin this round of spins with a left narrative from foreign policy. Though significant obstacles remain, the fact that Colombia and its leaders have indicated there is hope for peaceful dialogue shows that this historically violent Latin American nation may have turned over a new leaf. It won't be easy to persuade all stakeholders to reach an agreement, but Petro has already conducted more diplomacy than his predecessors. We also have a right narrative spin from El American. It's evident that Colombia needs total peace, but Petro's disastrous plan is encouraging illegal narco-terrorist armed groups to keep committing crimes, as they will be rewarded with total impunity. Instead of allowing asset laundering operations to benefit criminals, Colombia should bring these groups to justice and force them to pay sanctions and hand over their tainted money to the Colombian people. Here's the cynical narrative from Insight Crime. Petro's total peace plan offers a general framework to open dialogue and is a step towards achieving his ambitious goal. But the strategy is risky, as there is no alternative if negotiations go wrong or if criminal groups refuse to lay down their arms. Most problematically, this proposal fails to tackle the roots of violence in Colombia and could further decentralize groups, as evidenced by the FARC's demobilization. The thing that I learned from this story was that there are a lot 
of different paramilitary groups in Colombia. I think I think too many. I think that's yeah. It, it was a little hard to keep them straight just in this story alone. Yeah. And, uh, I'm yeah, sure if you start to get confused by the number of acronym militia groups you have, that's not a good sign. True. Very true. Anti-Putin militias overrun Russia's Belgorod region. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, TASS, Frontier India, and The Guardian. Two paramilitary groups crossed from Ukraine into Russia's Belgorod region on Monday, overrunning a border checkpoint in the settlement of Kozinka, resulting in armed clashes that injured a number of civilians. Russian officials allege the groups were Ukrainian saboteurs and said that the Russian military, the National Guard, and the Federal Security Service were taking necessary measures to eliminate the enemy. They further allege the move was initiated to divert focus away from Russia's capture of the Donetsk city of Bakhmut over the weekend. Meanwhile, Ukrainian officials denied responsibility, alleging the groups were made up of Russian citizens that opposed Russian President Vladimir Putin's government. Kyiv identified the groups as the Liberty of Russia Legion and the Russian Volunteer Corps and did not comment on whether they had assisted them. While the nature of the groups has yet to be independently confirmed, footage released on social media showed them operating U.S.-made equipment recently delivered to Ukraine, including mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles. As the Russian mopping-up operation continued into Tuesday, Belgorod Governor Vacheslav Gladkov said officials were taking measures to evacuate civilians and warned residents not to return to their homes until the threat had been eliminated. Gladkov added that artillery fire and mortar shelling has been reported in roughly 20 border regions. He said 12 civilians had been reported injured at this stage. Thanks for those facts, Melissa. We have a pro-Russian narrative from TASS. These attacks in Russia's Belgorod region were perpetrated by Ukrainian saboteurs with the help of the country's security services. Russian authorities are on the scene and taking the necessary steps to eliminate the threat. Pravda brings us a pro-Ukraine narrative. Ukraine has no involvement in these attacks. These movements are being carried out by Russian citizens who support Ukraine's fight against Vladimir Putin's tyranny. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 4% chance that a coup or regime change will take place in Russia before the year 2024. Okay, so Scott, uh, offline there, you mentioned a little bit about a mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles being mm-hmm. like the new Hummer. Yeah. So does that mean in 10, 20 years, we're going to see these on the streets? Yeah, Vin Diesel's going to just be driving one down, trying to park one at CVS or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah my, my neighbors will all have one just, yeah, just pulling up to the Safeway. Yep. Yeah, I'm going to get the MRAP2, the one that... That is a little bit smaller, you know, like uh, I'm going to go with that one. Oh, yeah. It's like it's a little more sleek. Uh, Barely. I remember I think I was reading an article. One of like the least in demand car possible right now is the Hummer H2 because the Hummer H1 at least is a Hummer. Like it's it's a very capable off road vehicle that gets five miles to the gallon or whatever. The H2 is just like a fake thing. You know, it's a big, big old truck. That's a huge rectangle, but it doesn't really have the capabilities that the Hummer does. So So, it has like all the downside with none of the upside. It's just a big, stupid car that now looks super out of date, too. (laughs) 
That so being it, said, it, in high school, I would have really liked to have a Hummer H2. I could have had some fun. Believe me. I mean, H1 or H2, right? Any any, H2. any H you got. Yeah, exactly. Cool. And then there was, of course, then the Xterra. There was the Nissan, like, fake off-road car uh, oh, that everyone yeah. had. A lot of – I worked at a baseball team, and a lot of salespeople who worked at that baseball team at about 2005, 2006 had Xterras. So I don't mm. know if that's – you just do with that information what you will. I'm not judging. I'm just observing. Sure, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> I'll store that away in the in the total tool division of my yes, brain. Yes, exactly. No yes. judgment, though. No, no, no judgment. Just, you're just observing. It's the difference between perceiving and judging. It's, yeah. it's totally different. Yep. That's right. I'm going to use that. I'm not judging you. I'm just perceiving you with... <laughs> All the tools that I can. <laughs> yes, I, I see you. Yeah, that's, yep. I see you. Believe me, I see you. Florida is sued for its Chinese citizens' property ban. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Axios, Yahoo News, The New York Post, and The Hill. Following Governor Ron DeSantis' signing of a bill that restricts people from China and six other countries from buying property in Florida earlier this month, a group of Chinese Florida residents filed a lawsuit on Monday arguing that the bill is unconstitutional and violates the Fair Housing Act. In addition to Chinese nationals who aren't U.S. citizens or green card holders, the bill also affects most citizens of Cuba, Venezuela, Syria, Iraq, Russia, and North Korea, barring them from owning property within 10 miles of any military installation. There's still uncertainty regarding the specifics of the bill, which has led to confusion among Chinese nationals who have already purchased property in Florida. The legislation has been altered to halt broad bans on Chinese Americans owning property statewide and lessen the distance restrictions. The legislation would allow, however, Chinese citizens with non-tourist visas to acquire single parcels of land that are at least five miles from critical infrastructure or military installations and smaller than two acres. Chinese citizens connected to the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party would also be barred from purchasing real estate in Florida. The lawsuit compares the bill, set to take effect on July 1st, to so-called alien land laws that U.S. states enacted in the early 20th century that barred Chinese and Japanese immigrants from owning land, most of which were overturned in the 1950s. Those were the facts. Thank you, Scott. We'll start these spins with a Republican narrative from Town Hall. Though the details need to be ironed out, this bill is a sensible measure in countering Chinese and other foreign states' influence in the U.S. For far too long, adversarial nations, namely China, have taken advantage of the U.S. free market to advance their geopolitical interests. Hopefully, more states will follow DeSantis's lead. And the Democratic narrative comes from the Los Angeles Times. Though China may not be a benign force in U.S. domestic politics, this bill is too broad, thus making it inherently discriminatory. The U.S. prides itself on being the home of enterprise and freedom, and barring those interested in such ideals from pursuing their dreams is wrong. The U.S. must prevent such discriminatory practices from occurring. Now, Melissa, we both lived in the Pacific Northwest during the, uh, you know, the boom period of the last you know, decade mm -hmm. or so. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there was always a boogeyman out there. Oh, you, you can't buy this house because some 
Chinese business is going to buy it with all cash, some kind of entity. Would you hear that too? I feel like I would hear that oh, a lot. Oh, absolutely. And uh, and, there, and there was truth to it too. There yeah. were big, um, you know, there were real estate investment firms abroad um, buying up bunches of properties and not inhabiting them in any way. Right. And it uh, would just block up the them. market. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, is but, that kind of what this is going for? Is well, that the is that the version of this that maybe makes some sense? Yes, that's the flavor I'm getting from this. However, just making legislation on it is tricky because you can't do you can't just rush through that without being discriminatory. I think there needs to be a difference between like being discerning and being discriminating. And like like I think without crossing off an entire several billion people, there should be some allowance so that families can buy a home without a Chinese conglomerate buying all the land. So yes, I don't know. And w- well, this seems, like a, this seems like a huge error because the way to do that is to get into the legal weeds and say, nowhere in there say where the person is from or what their heritage is. Right. Right. Yeah. It, sh- it should be a barring of, a, of an act, not by a certain people. The Maloney government is accused of ruthless influence over Italian state media. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Guardian, European Conservative, The Times, and The Evening Standard. Prime Minister Giorgia Maloney's right-wing government has been accused of trying to bend Italy's public broadcaster, RAI, to its will after a series of high-profile departures, including left-leaning talk show host Fabio Fazio and Luciana Littizzetto. This comes after the former managing director of RAI, Carlo Fortes, resigned earlier this month claiming that the state-funded TV and radio outlet is undergoing an ideological purge on the orders of the new government. While Fortes was replaced by government-appointed RAI manager Roberto Sergio, the former RAI board member, Giampaolo Rossi, who was backed by Maloney's Brothers of Italy party, has become director general. This state media overhaul is part of the government's crusade against what it alleges is left-wing bias pervading Italian culture, with Culture Minister Gennaro San Giuliano recently stating that Italy must fight for what he called journalist police officers who enforce political correctness. Party-friendly appointments are not new in Italy's state network, as ruling parties have long packed RAI with supporters to ensure favorable news coverage. Even so, the RAI3 channel is is likely to remain a left-wing enclave under Maloney, according to the newspaper Corriere della Sera. Maloney has been the leader of the Brothers of Italy since 2014, becoming the country's first female prime minister last October after running on a nationalist, conservative platform. Thank you, Scott. We'll start this round of narrative spins with a left narrative from Euronews. The Maloney government couldn't wait to get their hands on the levers of state media power, and now we know why. Not only is the ultra-conservative regime taking over state media, but all state-run cultural departments as well. Brothers of Italy is currently trying to disrupt decades of anti-fascist progress, and shaping the public discourse is step one in this regressive effort. And the Washington Examiner brings us the right narrative spin. Each report on Giorgia Maloney's cultural policies is baseless. The left-wing media globally despises her, not because her ideas are wrong or she's evil, but because she has common-sense beliefs and promotes true Italian culture. The left needs to invoke fear in the public to blind them from the fact that its decades of tearing apart the nuclear family and religion have been a net negative to society. 
And there's a nerd narrative with this story from the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's a 3% chance that South Tyrol will secede from Italy before 2050. France will deploy 35,000 security personnel at the 2024 Olympics. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, the Associated Press, ESPN, Global News, Reuters, and Le Monde. Citing concerns over novel drone threats, French Interior Minister Gérald Darmanin announced the deployment of 35,000 security and military troops to protect the 2024 Olympics opening ceremony that will proceed along the River Seine in the heart of Paris. The opening ceremony is set to be one of the most extravagant in Olympics history, executed along the six-kilometer or three-and-a-half-mile river. In preparation, the French government, the Olympics Committee president, and the Parisian mayor issued an 11-page security protocol on Tuesday. Darmanin expects more than 600,000 people to attend the opening event and called on other countries to increase their intelligence sharing in order to combat potential terror threats, including from drones, which, although he said it is an unlikely risk, called the hardest to stop. In addition to the extra security during the opening ceremony, the plan will see an average of 30,000 officers deployed daily during the events, scheduled for July 26 until August 11th. The plan also requests that the European Commission reinstate border controls for people arriving from the passport-free Shenzhen area, whose countries allow unrestricted movement of people. While the Commission has yet to respond, it will likely oblige. The heightened security will cost an estimated 200 million euros, which has caused controversially high ticket prices for the opening ceremony. While some 500,000 will be able to attend for free in some capacity, 100,000 premium seats cost up to 2,700 euros, or $2,900 each. Thanks for the rundown, Melissa. Zalia brings us Narrative A. The Olympic Games are an opportunity for people from around the world to unite and experience athletic greatness on display. However, the exorbitant prices set for the 2024 Paris Olympics set an unreasonable barrier that defies the Olympics' commitment to make the Games accessible to all. It is quite unfortunate that many people with a love for competition will not be allowed to attend the Games because of corporate greed. ESPN brings us Narrative B. While it would be ideal to have tickets to the Olympic Games affordable to all people, there are security costs and market demands that must be considered and prioritized. The fact that millions of tickets have already been sold shows that not only is there plenty of demand for tickets despite the price of some, but that people recognize that there's no price on safety. Whenever I think of the River Seine, I think of that, uh, that famous bridge that everyone puts those locks on that uh, oh, is supposed right. to show your love. And I believe that bridge is collapsing under the weight of all those of those locks. Oh, uh, so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, like Too most relationships. Love. Yeah. Um, so if we can we get that bridge secured first if we're worried about security? Like they can't even get that right. That is, that's a problem with Paris. Too much love. It weighs you down. <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> News from the Twitter buyout. A judge throws out a shareholder lawsuit against Musk. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNA, The Print, Reuters, and The Economic Times. U.S. District Judge Charles Breyer in San Francisco, California, ruled Monday to dismiss a class action lawsuit against Twitter owner Elon Musk. 
The lawsuit claimed Musk cheated shareholders several times last year in the course of buying the social media company for $44 billion. Breyer said the plaintiff, William Hersniak, who filed the suit one month before Twitter accepted the buyout on October 27, 2022, lacked standing to sue because he challenged wrongs associated with Musk's buyout rather than the fairness of the buyout itself. Breyer also ruled that Hersniak failed to prove that he was harmed by Musk's belated disclosure of a 9.2% stake in Twitter, which he said allowed the billionaire to buy more shares at lower prices before the buyout was announced. Another rejected claim was that Musk helped two then-Twitter board members, co-founder Jack Dorsey and private equity firm Silver Lake managing partner Egon Durbin, breach their financial obligations by favoring their own and Musk's interests. This comes as Musk, who bought the company for $54.20 per share, has had to manage declining ad revenue on the platform. He also named former NBC Universal Advertising Chief Linda Yaccarino as Twitter's new CEO on May 12th. Thank you, Scott. And we'll start this round of spins with Narrative A from Business Insider. Musk's lawyers justifiably characterize this lawsuit as a disjointed laundry list of often irrelevant grievances. And Judge Breyer agrees. While Musk may have enriched himself as a result of the buyout, even though the company has since lost half its value, Hersniak didn't lose any money from it. There was no proof the plaintiff actually lost any cash over this. And narrative B comes from the conversation. Though company acquisitions are typically mutually beneficial agreements for both buyers and sellers, Musk's decision to publicly bid on the company and then abruptly pull out of the deal was not a typical acquisition. Musk did eventually pay the $44 billion offer that he went to court over, but that doesn't take away the dip in share prices that occurred between the day he first announced his bid and the day the deal went through. All right, Scott, Elon Musk is knocking on your door and he says, hey, we want you to be the first comedian in space. Will you colonize Mars with us? Oh, okay. So uh, my first instinct is to say yes. However, have you are you familiar with my motion sickness situation? <laughs> <laughs> right. Never mind. It's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. The EU seeks a court backing in a $14 billion Apple tax fight. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, U.S. News and World Report, The Economic Times, and The Business Recorder. EU competition regulators appealed to the union's highest court on Tuesday to override a lower court decision and make Apple pay 13 billion euros in Irish back taxes. The European Commission, or EC, said in 2016 that two Irish tax rulings had artificially reduced Apple's tax burden for over 20 years. However, the general court said in 2020 that regulators hadn't met the legal standard to show Apple had an unfair advantage. EC lawyer Paul John Lowenthal told the Court of Justice of the European Union, or the CJEU, that the previous ruling was legally flawed and should be set aside. Apple disagreed, arguing that it had paid its fair share of taxes in the appropriate country. While the EU competition enforcer has had several high-profile losses in recent months, including against automaker Stellantis, Amazon, and Starbucks, the CJEU in September took its side in a Belgian tax break case against a group of multinational companies. 
The case began Tuesday with a final ruling on the issue by the Court of Justice expected in the coming months. Thanks, Melissa. We have Narrative A from Apple Insider. Apple has paid its fair share of taxes under the Irish tax code, including a corporate tax of $7.69 billion in 2022, a 73% year-over-year increase. Furthermore, the profits that the Commission says should have been taxed in Ireland, totaling a whopping €20 billion, were already taxed in the U.S. Narrative B is provided by the Next Web. This case will decide whether U.S.-based corporations and the billions of dollars they generate outside the U.S. will be able to hide their profits from other governments. Apple Sales International and Apple Operations Europe receive most of their revenue from outside the U.S., which clearly shows why that money should be taxable in Ireland. Man, Apple makes a good computer, though. Yeah, I do like it a lot. (laughs) I like how it works, and I like how it makes me feel about myself that I have one. So I'm I'm the target audience. There's a user ease to it, right? If this is like the non, and I guess that was, this is like decades ago, marketed as the non-computer users, right? It's like for artists. Yeah, it's for creatives. It's supposed to to be intuitive. Um, I'm I'm a fan. I'm a customer. And then they loop you into their ecosystem. I was thinking the other day, so I have Apple iCloud and it's like essential. Like it has all your family pictures and you couldn't do without it. Integrates into your phone, all that stuff. And like, if you think about like, man, if you're paying 10 bucks a month for the rest of your life, that's, that's a lot. You and know, a lot of customers. Yeah. And, and yeah. everybody is paying them, you know, whatever it is, 10 or 30 bucks, you know, whatever it is, your plan. And then you only need it more and more. The more pictures, the more pictures I take with my phone, the more I need this thing and I couldn't possibly be do without it. So yeah, man, it's, it's, uh, I'm sure there's some way to divest yourself from it and transfer it, but why would you at that point? You're just going to transfer it to another expensive thing. And, and I, yeah. And I will no, say you're like, going to print every single right. picture you've taken since 2011. And I'll say this. One time, my wife put her brand new phone on the hood of our car by accident. And Oops. then I drove away to get some stuff. And then the phone flew off on the highway and shattered into, you know, it was broken. Yeah. But the pictures she took like five minutes before were saved on our cloud. Like in addition to all the wow. other pictures, even the ones from five minutes before were saved. So like it works, man. It's, it's uh, you know, and what's that worth? I don't know what it's worth, but it's probably worth 10 bucks a month. I wish. So the other day, my husband put his coffee on the hood of the car and started driving (laughs) away. If that could be saved to the cloud and then when that shattered on the highway, he could have another cup of coffee just zapped into his hand. That's next. I would be a very happy person. Yeah. Yeah. Tim Cook, work on that. Yeah. Cloud coffee. Cloud coffee. What's the story with those bikini places? Is that like a real thing? Is that like is that prevalent? The bikini coffee houses They're everywhere. And I went to one, I went to one once, thinking like, okay, is this going to be a girl in a bikini? Because I think I had like driven by one once, and it's just like you know Daisy Dukes in a bikini yeah. top. So I went to the one that faces East Marginal Way, right? You know where like ninety nine turns into yeah. Georgetown. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I you know it's the nearest thing to the Soto Clinic that I'm in. I'm just that's really quick, and I don't have much time, so I'll go there. And it's closer than Starbucks, so you know, and it's not facing the windows facing away from the road. Okay. For a reason, so I I go up. And it's just me in the car, and this woman is less dressed less than a stripper. 
the stuff she has on makes her look more naked than naked. Right, right. It was like right. super sheer and very uh, hypersexual. And I was like, I feel so awkward right now. <laughs> now, hold on a minute. How was the coffee? I don't remember. So no. East Marginal, north of Georgia. Okay, got it. All right, thank you. Guam braces for a direct hit from Super Typhoon Mawar. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the L.A. Times, Barron's, Axios, USA Today, Voice of America, and ABC News. Guam, the remote Pacific Island territory of the U.S., is bracing for a direct hit from the intensifying Super Typhoon Mawar. On Tuesday, the cyclone was 195 miles southeast of the island and is expected to make landfall as a Category 4 storm, packing up to 150-mile-an-hour winds. In addition to high winds, the storm is expected to bring a deluge of rain that will cause catastrophic flooding. The National Weather Service in Guam warned residents in a tweet saying, Be in solid reinforced concrete structure tonight. Worst conditions Wednesday. Guam's Governor Lou Leon Guerrero has declared a state of emergency for the island's 168,000 residents and three American military bases ahead of the major impacts as Mawar's eye is expected to pass over the island. As meteorologists warn that Mawar could be the strongest storm to hit Guam in decades, U.S. President Biden has approved the island's request for an emergency disaster declaration. The declaration will allow for the mobilization and deployment of critical resources and support. In addition to deadly winds and catastrophic flooding, Guam could see a storm surge of up to 15 feet above normal high tide. Tuesday afternoon and into Wednesday, when the worst impacts are expected, the surf could reach as high as 25 feet or 7.5 meters, according to the National Weather Service. In preparation, the island residents began stockpiling goods from grocery and hardware stores. Officials have issued a warning for the many residents who live in homes made of wood and tin. We'll start the spins with Narrative A from the Washington Post. Climate change is real, and it's happening before our eyes. The warming climate is increasing the temperatures in the oceans. This blistering hot water is fueling hurricanes and cranking up the energy that results in devastating winds and pounding surf. The natural variables that slow storms down and limit strengthening are weakening, again due to changes in our climate. The good news is that as storms continue to increase in frequency and magnitude, our tools for tracking and monitoring are growing more accurate. If we aren't going to limit the Earth's warming, we can at least adequately warn people who are in the impact zone. Narrative B comes from the Financial Times. It's easy to dismiss any extreme weather event as a consequence of human-induced climate change, but in reality they're usually influenced by a myriad of factors that have nothing to do with it. The history of this planet shows that temperatures fluctuate in cyclical patterns, and the changes we see are not necessarily out of the ordinary. More research is needed before we can establish any direct causal link between the two. And there's another nerd narrative, this one saying there's a 48% chance that New York City will experience a hurricane by 2030. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. You ever been through a hurricane? Have you ever been in hurricane conditions? I have. Oh, uh, tell me all about it. Yeah, it was uh, Hurricane Isabel, and this was in 2003 or four in Virginia, or in Northern Virginia. And it really mm-hmm. hit Richmond a lot worse than it hit Northern Virginia, but I was in college. And so, you know, of course, there was 
I was, I'm sure I was 21, but there was excessive drinking going on. Uh, do and the math so, on that. Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. No. So we um, we lived in the student apartments and uh, and we were drinking hurricanes. We had uh, hur- oh. hurricane the malt beverage and we had hurricane the heavy pour a- alcohol drink. That's like a new, it's like a uh, Long Island iced tea, I think. Yeah. Hurricane's yeah. like a sugary sugary liquor it's like a kind of like you know it's just a lot of sugar and alcohol it is an it is a new orleans drink i think that's where it came from that's what i would i thinking of uh in on my my bachelor party which uh was not during a hurricane but it was in new orleans uh we went to wrestlemania and uh the nice uh, that's a good scott bachelor party it was a good scott bachelor party went to new it happened to be all the stars aligned and we went to wrestlemania 30 for my bachelor party in new orleans Oh my gosh, the hurricane, the sugary drinks, man. They just oh. and like a, and especially if they're in like a huge, super long skull shaped container. Or something <laughs> like you're, so not a, like it's not good. And there's smoke coming off it. And you're pro- what's yes. the um what's what what's the thing that you're not supposed to have from plastic bottles? The BHT oh, or the so, BPAs. BPA. I'm sure I'm getting a lot of that too. They're they're not. These aren't. Oh, BPA that's the least freeze. of your worries. <laughs> <laughs> so like every everything is wrong. Like oh my gosh, woof! It was a great time, but like wow, yeah, that was oh, I was man. in a hurricane. And that was it. The UK declines to return an Ethiopian prince's remains. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, NDTV, Sky News, The Telegraph, The Guardian, and The Daily Mail. Buckingham Palace has reportedly denied requests to return the remains of an Ethiopian prince who was buried in the catacombs of St. George's Chapel in Windsor Castle in the 19th century. The British Army brought Prince Alamayu to the UK at age seven following the defeat of his father, Ethiopian Emperor Todros II, at the Battle of Magdala in 1868. He arrived as an orphan after his mother died en route and was taken under the wing of Queen Victoria before his death from what was likely pneumonia at 18. Descendants of Prince Alamayu had requested the British royal family return his remains to the homeland, saying it was not right for the prince to remain buried in the UK, as it's not the country he was born in. However, a Buckingham Palace spokesperson said that it would be impossible to exhume the remains without disturbing the resting place of a substantial number of others in the vicinity. While chapel authorities said they were sensitive to the need to honor Alamayu's memory, they insisted it was also their responsibility to preserve the dignity of the departed. In 2007, the Ethiopian government unsuccessfully requested the queen to return Prince Alamayu's body so he could be buried beside his father. Then, in 2019, Ethiopia's ambassador to London urged her to reconsider her decision, insisting the prince was stolen and comparing him to a prisoner of war. Thanks for those interesting facts, Melissa. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the Washington Post. It's not right to pressure Windsor Castle on this matter, as there's a valid reason to continue to hold Prince Alamahu's remains in the UK. While it's tragic that he was dislocated from Ethiopia, and there is a case for his repatriation, identifying and exhuming the prince wouldn't be possible, as there are dozens of bodies buried in the catacombs. Here's the establishment critical narrative from East African Herald. Though the logistics of exhuming the remains are complex... It's unfair to keep Prince Alameyu's body in a foreign country, as his rightful resting place is next to his father in Ethiopia. 
Moreover, the UK, which also plundered Ethiopia to steal its gold, jewelry, and exotic animals, can use this moment to atone for its imperial past and diplomatic blunder by sending the prince's body back to where it belongs. Where do you stand on that, Scott? Did you think that all these people are up, up out and wherever they are floating around now? Like, we don't care where you put our bodies. I mean, I really like that movie Ghost, you know, Whoopi Goldberg and Patrick Swayze. Oh, yeah. Um, so I, I imagine that's how this whole thing works. So if there's someone with unfinished business, they're still kind of like standing around us. Yeah. Um, so maybe this is Prince Alamahu's unfinished business and we need to get this resolved for him. I don't know. Or has it been so long that he's like, you know, I'm just a ball of white light. I just don't really don't care anymore. That's more likely. Yeah. If if there is such thing as as the supernatural and ghosts and stuff, they don't care. And frankly, if there are supernatural ghosts and stuff, I, I don't care anymore about any of this stuff. Like, let's <laughs> let's let's move. Let's move on. This We, we got uh, cooler stuff to think about. The whole, the only thing keeping us from the coolness of the afterlife is this whole death problem. Like that doesn't sound great to me. Yeah, that part is that's kind of scary. Like I was definitely scared to give birth, and I was right to be scared. Mm, <laughs> like right, from the other right. side, I was like, but yeah. yeah. So I think that's death is kind of like birth in that way, where it's like, oh yeah, you're going somewhere else, and but you'll be back. Yeah. <laughs> They made yeah. me hold a bucket when my wife was giving birth. They were like, here, we really need you to hold this. Like, <laughs> and then, was and she I, puking a lot? No, no. I think it was just they just needed my hands to do something. And oh. I was I don't know if I was <laughs> freaking out or whatever. Like, hey, you just, you know, we really, this is a very important buck pail that we have here. Like, you got to hold it. Like, you got it, boss. Like, okay. So I don't know you if they thought. Bucket. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know <laughs> if they thought I was going to do something weird or they just wanted to make sure that my hands were occupied or whatever. Mm. But looking back on it, I don't think that bucket was as vital as they made it seem. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, May 24th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Improve the News.